So Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12, going down through verse 36. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. When Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he, for he is our brother, our own flesh and his brothers listened to him. Then then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt, without doubt, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come to you um, giving you thanks for all of your many blessings, for all of your graciousness to us, for your kindness that is expressed in innumerable ways. Um, God, we thank you for the way that you provide for us 
um, in terms of our, our daily lives um, and our necessities. God, we thank you that you, you give us food and shelter. Um, God, that you give us employment so that we can earn a wage and, and contribute not only to our community, but that we can, we can make money for our families so that we can live. Um, God, we thank you for, um, the blessings that come along with community and living in a place of, of, uh, relative peace and safety where we can live our lives, um, and, and, um, engage with our communities in, in a healthy way. Um, God, we thank you for the blessings of church and how, uh, we, we have these, these local communities and local bodies of believers all throughout our county, um, who gather together, um, each Lord's day and at other times, God, to, to share, um, the love of Christ with each other, God, to bear each other's burdens, to rejoice at each other's, um, joys, to, to weep at each other's sorrows, um, God, and to, um, share the good news of Jesus Christ, not only amongst ourselves, um, with, but with those in our communities. God, we thank you for all these blessings, um, the blessings that come through through society and through community um, and the things that you have ordained. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we open your word that you would use it to shape your people. God, that we would see ourselves in these passages, that we would see, even more importantly, Christ in this story. Um, God, and that we would um, see the foretelling um, of the gospel and, and God, not only the way that you worked in history thousands of years ago, but God, the way that you have worked, um, in, um, in and through Jesus Christ and him bringing salvation to us by his, by his cross. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you bless our time as we study your word in Jesus name. Amen. So tonight we are going to do, here's something just, just kind of a weird thing. Um, I looked at back at our, uh, previous sermons and I looked back to literally about a year ago and about a year ago, we were going through the crucifixion story, the passion week story of Jesus. And we were on the night in which Jesus was betrayed by his disciples um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, the place where Judas comes and betrays Christ and, and then the disciples all run. That's where we were almost this date last year. Um, and so it was interesting because we came to it. Typically, I might not repeat a, a theme that is so, um, specific because we're talking about the idea of betrayal tonight. And so that's a pretty zoomed in kind of theme. Um, and I might not repeat it so quickly within just a year or so, but that was our text and that was the story. And obviously this story, as we'll see, is pointing towards that story, uh, in many ways. Um, and so we will, we will m- make some connections, particularly at the end of the message. So, um, remember what I said a couple weeks ago about this idea of when we read the scripture, there is a way in which we can interpret the scripture that, that is sometimes called the fourfold reading of scripture. And that is to say, as we come to the text, there is different ways of looking at a text that are, that are all legitimate. 
Okay. So we, we come to a passage and they don't necessarily, every passage doesn't have all four of these meanings, but oftentimes they do is first off, there's a historical meaning. There is, it is a story about what happened. And so when we come to this text, these are events that we believe happened in real time, in real history. It's not just a legend. It isn't just a fairy tale. We believe that this is something that happened, right? And that those events led to other events that led to other events that, 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 um, worked out in a certain way. So that's one way we could read the story is, is just as a historical, um, account of what has happened. Another way that we can look at the text is, is look for the moral lessons, right? The moral tropes that are present there that teach us and inform us about how God would have us to live. They give us warnings in by, by cautionary tales in the scriptures, right? We watch other people mess up in the scriptures and we say, don't want to do that. Um, and we see other people who are faithful in the scriptures and we say, yes, this is how Christ has called us to live. So there's a moral aspect to the text, okay? What we talked about, especially last week, is there is a typological um, aspect to the text. That is to say, Oftentimes, the stories in the Old Testament are pointing forward to Jesus in some way. They are pointing towards the work of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. They are pointing towards the gospel and showing us um, something that will occur in the New Testament, particularly in Christ. Um, and uh, and so we are sort of a there's a foretelling um, in in a in a way. Um, and then the last one, and this is probably the one that is maybe the least obvious. And the least used, and partially because we're not there yet, is there is sometimes an eschatological meaning to the text. And that is to say, it is pointing us to the end times. It is pointing us to the final consummation when, when Christ returns and sets all things to right and, and the righteous are brought to Christ and the, and the wicked are judged and God sets up his eternal kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth and all of those different things. And so sometimes what we see is the, the Old Testament is actually sort of predicting and foretelling that time and looking forward to that time and, and in the future. And so when we come to a scripture, we can at least think about it in all four of those ways. And, and each one may at different points be more, um, particularly relevant at that time. And so what I want to do today is is look a little bit at the historical maybe, but probably more at the, the moral and then the typological of this passage. And I want to start with this theme, this trope that we see throughout Scripture, and it is the theme of betrayal. The betrayal is a major theme in the Scriptures. So we think about the reality of betrayal. Betrayal um, the difficulty of betrayal, the thing that makes betrayal all the more hard to endure in our lives is because it happens from someone who you love and trust, right? In fact, the truth is it can only happen from someone you love and trust. That's what makes it a betrayal. If your enemy does something against you, you just sort of say, oh, well, I expected that. Uh, of course, my enemy would attack me. But when somebody that we love, somebody that we we trust um, does something to hurt us, does something to attack us, does something to betray us, it cuts extra deep, right? Um, it burns um, worse than it would from an enemy or even from a stranger. David expresses that very sentiment in Psalm 55. So listen to what David says. He says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, 
my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Right. And so David is talking about a scenario in which he has been betrayed by somebody that he considered a close friend, someone that he uh, not only knew in terms of a relationship, but somebody he worshiped God with. Right. Somebody who went to his church. Obviously, that's an anachronism. Right. But somebody who he was close to in those ways. If you think about it, the theme of betrayal pops up over and over again throughout the scripture, showing us different aspects of betrayal, different relationships through which that betrayal comes. So just kind of go back and think in your head real quick of all the different places of a story of betrayal that, that, that come to mind as you, as you think of the scriptures. And then I'll start kind of reading through some and, and you can sort of in your head score some points or whatever. You'd be like, Ooh, I got that one. I got that one. Right. Um, so obviously from the very beginning, what do we have? We have Cain betrays Abel. A brother betrays his brother. Delilah betrays Samson to the Philistines, a wife betraying her husband. Saul betrays David. That is a king betraying his faithful subject. Then David betrays Uriah. And you might say, okay, well, that's another king and subject relationship, but it's actually more than that because Uriah, the Bible tells us, was one of David's mighty men. Uh, Uriah was one of the men that when David was in exile, living in the deserts, scavenging and fighting and raiding and doing all these things for his survival, one of the band of brothers that he had, one of those men was Uriah. There's a brother in arms that, that David betrays. A little bit later in David's story, David's son, Absalom betrays his father, David, a son betraying a father. Maybe some that are less familiar to us, if you're not as familiar with the the stories in the Old Testament, particularly in Kings and Chronicles. Ahab betrays Micaiah. That is, a king betrays an honest advisor. An advisor who he says, hey, I want you to tell me the truth. He tells him the truth, and then he is punished for it. Or Joash, who betrays Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. That is, a king betraying one of God's prophets. So, again, the closeness of relationships at different levels, right? Fathers and sons, brothers and brothers, um, husbands and wives, kings and subjects. All these different close-knit relationships are exactly what makes that pain possible. There's lots of people in our world who will never enter into a close, caring, intimate relationship for that very reason, for fear of betrayal, right? They won't commit to a marriage. They won't commit to a church. Sometimes they won't even really commit to a friendship because they fear betrayal. And the, the, the idea of betrayal, this, this pain of someone who is close to you betraying you is obviously at the heart of our story. And it's interesting, and you may have noticed this as I read it, it's emphasized by a single word in that section that we just read. It's emphasized by the word brothers. See, you may or may not have noticed, but just in that chapter, chapter 37, the word brother is said 19 times in one chapter, okay? 
it just, if, if you go back and read it, it seems goofy almost how many times it says it. You know, there's these sentences that are like, and then the brothers said to their brothers, brothers, we should go down and, and take our brother and, and bring him to the other brother. You know, it's things like that. Over and over again, this word brother keeps on popping up. Brother, brother, brother. Why is that word emphasized? Well, I think we know why, because it's zooming in on the fact that these are people, the people that do the betraying in this passage are people who should have had Joseph's back. They are people who should have been watching out for him, people who should have taken responsibility for him, not just should have taken responsibility for him, but had a responsibility to take responsibility for him. And that that causes the betrayal to be that much deeper. And as we already read just in chapter 37, man, the causes for that betrayal, why they are so mad at their brother are numerous. And we get a sense of them even in this passage. There is jealousy. There is hatred. There is greed involved. There is ingratitude. There is self-concern and self-righteousness. All those things are emphasized by little hints within the text. And the reality is, is this for all of us. I know there, are, there's lots of hurt in this area, right? There are lots of us in this room who probably at some point have felt deeply betrayed by someone that was close to them. Uh, you guys know my friend, some of you know him, uh, Rob Brantner. So Rob and I used to get together and, and do accountability and, and we still get together some, but we just don't happen to get together a bunch. But a few years back, Rob started coming to me. And as we talked with each other about accountability stuff and whatever, all of a sudden out of nowhere, one time Rob said, Hey, do you feel betrayed by anybody? Are you dealing with betrayal? And I was kind of like, that's a weird question. Like, where would that come from? Um, and it was something that he had read or some insight he had come to in the scriptures, but he said, man, I just feel like pastors are in a unique position to feel betrayed in certain cases, right? To feel like there was somebody that they trusted and then that person turned their back on them. And, and I, fortunately I was able to say, no, man, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't feel like I've been betrayed by anybody, but he continued to ask me that question because he recognized what a big deal it is. Um, I, I know for a fact that some of you have been in relationships, experienced um, deep betrayal um, by people who you trusted. Some of you probably have very strained relationships, specifically like in this story, have very strained relationships with your siblings. Obviously, I think God's design would be that our siblings would be the people to whom we are closest to in the entire world. Right. That is the way I think God would want our relationships to be. And yet every single one of us knows that that's not always the case. I, I, I thank God all the time. I have one brother and my brother's my best friend. He is. Um, he's my absolute best friend. And we have a, we have a great relationship. Doesn't mean we do not have tensions at different times in our lives, but we have a great relationship. And I thank God for that because I know that lots of people just don't have that that there have been all these other things and baggages that have come in, particularly in family relationships. There's a reason why one of the most used terms in the New Testament to describe the fellowship of the church is what? These are your brothers and sisters, right? Because that is the relationship that would be, should be one of the closest ones in your life. 
And yet we all know that's not always the way it works. Some of the same problems that we see in this story happen in our own families. There is baggage from past hurts. There are past betrayals. There are fights and favoritism and things that have shaped your relationship with those, those key people in your life. But we mentioned this last week that, that this is a story not only about Joseph and the providential salvation that he brings, but it's also a story about the reclamation of a family. It is a story about how God takes this incredibly broken family, a family that is generationally broken, and how he brings repentance and reconciliation, and that is all made possible by God. Because here's something that we notice as we read the text, and obviously we're jumping ahead just a little bit to even talk about this. But in the coming years, as you, I mean, you, you, you read the story of these brothers in chapter 37, and it is, it's cold-blooded, right? I mean, it is, it's almost, it's, it's hard to believe how cold-blooded it is, right? That they would so um, callously, so maliciously want the death of their brother um, to use his, 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 uh, when they decide not to go and kill him, to, to, to sell him into slavery, like it's, th- th- there's just awful stuff going on there. And yet this is what we also see in the coming chapters over the years, these brothers seem to mellow and think much better of their actions. They recognize the sin that they committed against Joseph and its consequences. They begin to exhibit the kind of care and responsibility they should have shown to Joseph, but instead now to the other favored brother, who is Benjamin. Even to the extent that when we get later in, on in the story, some of the brothers are willing to jeopardize their own lives and their own families, their own children, to keep Benjamin safe. Whereas in this part of the story, they are are um, callous and wicked towards Joseph. And so again, what we're seeing is we're seeing a family changed by the grace of God over the course of the story. But we're not that far into it yet. Right now, the, the betrayal is staring us in the face. And so I would ask you, and, and you would, would maybe experience and say, well, Ash, what do I do to move past those betrayals? How do I, how do I get past that when it comes to experiencing that kind of betrayal in my life? Well, it's a hard thing. We should be honest and say this, that many people never find their way out of it. Okay, Many people live with the hurt and the anger of that betrayal for the rest of their lives. You don't have to, but we know people who have done that, where the betrayal becomes a cancer that is basically eating at them forever. So how do we move past it? Well, I would say this. It's as simple and it's as complex as the gospel. The first thing that we need to do to move past the hurt and the anger that comes from those kind of betrayals is first you come to a realization that at some level you are not only the one who has been betrayed, but you have been a betrayer yourself. In some way, maybe not in the relationship that is is the, the focal point for you, but but you have been a betrayer as well. You are, you did, you have 
You will probably again in the future in some way. You will turn your back on somebody. You will say something. You will betray somebody. You will let them down in a way that another person will feel as a betrayal. Okay. So the first thing, the first way we get over the betrayals that we have experienced in our own lives is we say, we acknowledge our own sin. We say, I am no different ultimately at the end of the day. The same sin that exists in their lives exists in me. Maybe in different ways. Maybe it hasn't manifested the same way, but we all sit under that curse. Do you remember Peter? Bold Peter? When Jesus says, you guys are all going to betray me and run away, what does Peter say? Not me. I will be here till the end, Jesus. I will be here if it costs me my life. I would never do that. Never betray you. And of course, what does Jesus say? Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Before this, before the sun rises again, you'll betray me three times. We all need to come to a realization that we are the betrayers. So that's the first thing. And it's tied to the gospel, right? The first step in the gospel is acknowledging our sin. That's how the gospel begins, is we recognize that we are sinners. That we're part of the same problem that we see in other people. But then the second step is that we would look to Christ. That we would look to his mercy, to his grace, to his forgiveness. So there's nuance and distinction in all three of those words that I just said. Mercy, grace, forgiveness. Cheeto and I were having a conversation about this, about talking about the way the Bible talks about those things. And and we can use some nuance there. We can make it too simple. Um, we can talk about those words in different ways because there's an aspect of it where a real reconciliation for that to happen between two people, for complete forgiveness to be extended, there's got to be repentance from the other person. Okay, so if someone has betrayed you, it's going to be hard for you to ever get back to a a, a completely right place unless that person acknowledges their betrayal and repents. And then you have the opportunity to extend um, forgiveness to them. But even having said that, we can also say that Christ stands in a posture of grace and mercy towards the world at all times. So Christ looks to the world and says, I am ready and willing to be reconciled to you if you will come to me, right? If you will do what I've called you to do, that is to turn from your sin and trust in me. If you'll, if you'll acknowledge your sin and come back, I am willing to forgive. We recognize that that's not always where people are at when it comes to betrayal. A lot of times when you've been betrayed by somebody, what, what's your attitude towards them? I'm done with them, right? I've written them off. I'm not interested in them anymore. If they were to show back up today in true humility and repentance, I still wouldn't forgive them because they're dead to me. I've written them off. Just a few weeks ago in youth Sunday school class, we were talking about the beautiful story that is found in the gospel of John after the resurrection of Jesus. And the disciples are out fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and there's all of a sudden a man on the beach, and he tells them to cast their nets on the other side. They've not caught anything all night, and he says, 
cast your nets on the other side. So they, they listen to him and they bring in this haul of fish and then they realize it's Jesus, right? So if you remember the story, they start bringing the boat in, but Peter, he, he pulls up his, his tunic or whatever and, and jumps in the water and swims to shore and goes up and talks to Jesus. And so they sit down around a fire. They begin to eat and, and share in some of the, uh, the catch from, from the fishermen and then Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do, Lord. And then he says, then feed my sheep. He ends up asking Peter the same question three times. Why three times? Probably because Peter denied him three times. And Jesus is, is pointing out something to Peter. He is assuring Peter that even though Peter betrayed him, that Christ is ready to forgive and that there is still a place for Peter within Christ's kingdom. In fact, in his service. In fact, he's got big plans for Peter. Peter's going to be a pretty integral part of the church that Christ is, is starting. So that's the second thing is we have to be open in terms of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And three, remember the final thing, that if you're not better than your betrayer, right, if your Savior has um, forgiven your betrayals, then forgive. Just forgive. That's hard to do, again, because we think that somehow our hurts are worse than other hurts that have been experienced. They're certainly worse than the things that we have done to other people. But man, it just seems really hard to believe that we have somehow, that our hurts are bigger than the hurts that Jesus experienced from our betrayals. That should get to us. I think it is the case that complete forgiveness, reconciliation can only happen when there's repentance, sometimes even restitution, right? Sometimes you got to pay people back for the hurt that you have done in some way. There has to be a track record of faithfulness before a relationship can be completely mended. But you do say at the end of the day, I will not be the impediment to reconciliation. I will not be the one who stands in the way of us being reconciled, okay? I will not hold the grudge. I will not be unforgiving. The ball is going to be in their court in some ways, right? The betrayer needs to repent and seek forgiveness. But you have to have an open heart and attitude towards them of grace and mercy. Mercy, that is, you're not going to demand justice, okay? That's a big deal, okay? When someone has sinned against you, there is something in us, both good and wicked, that says, I want them to pay, okay? Justice is a good thing, so we're not anti-justice, okay? But there is something in us that says, I want that person to pay for what they have done to me. But what I'm telling you is, is I think the Bible is calling us to mercy, to say, I'm not going to demand justice for that betrayal. 
I'm not going to ask that they get what was coming to them. And not just mercy, but extend grace to them. That is, be open to reconciliation and be favorably disposed to that person. It's a weird thing to say, too. It's hard when someone has hurt you so deeply to say, yeah, man, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of them favorably. I'm trying not to let all that junk in the past be the thing that defines everything about them. And again, we know that's exactly what we all do. Just this week... Tell you another dumb Facebook story. I'm not, I'm not posting on Facebook anymore, guys. I'm not, I'm not doing it. I didn't do it this time, but there was a thing. There was a comment that was made and man, I wanted to say something. I wanted to say something so bad because it was dumb and I just wanted to clear the air and I wanted to say something. But you know what? All of the baggage from that relationship was in the forefront when I thought about it and I went, no, I I can't, I can't, I'm not in a position to clear that stuff to the side and talk to this person as just a normal person, right? That's not what I'm going to come to the table with. I'm going to come to the table with all this baggage. And so I decided the best thing in this case is for me to just back off and, and leave it alone. Man, it's hard to do that. It is hard to, to let all that stuff go, but that's what we're called to do. I say this over and over again. And so I hate to harp on it. This, the whole culture of canceling, the whole culture of removing toxic people from your life is anti-Christic. Okay. It is anti-gospel. The idea that you can look at somebody and say, the way that you hurt me means you cease to exist in my life. I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to engage with you. I don't have to be connected to you in any way ever again. To me, you do not exist. That is not Christian. It comes from some other spirit in the world. And yet, again, if you get on social media, it is every third post. It is people saying they're doing it, and it's people encouraging other people to do it. Just remember, you don't have to put up with these toxic people. You can wipe those people out of your life and go ahead and live your life. If your parents don't accept you or love you, then dump them. If your family doesn't love you or accept you, then dump them. If you've got a friend who disagrees with your beliefs on anything, politics or religion or sexuality or whatever, dump them. That's what the world keeps on telling us. That is not the picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness that we see in the scriptures. It can happen on either side. It can come from the son who stayed, disowning the one that left, or it can come from the one who left, disowning the one that stayed. But extend mercy. That is the third thing. So I want to shift from the moral context of the passage to the Christological and typological, although we continue to see the moral. And this is the reason why. Because some of the things that we see are pictures of how Christ responds to things. And therefore, it is morally how we should respond to things. Because this story is a picture of Jesus Christ. Because why? Jesus is betrayed too. 
In fact, Jesus' betrayal is a core part of the gospel story and, and the passion of Christ. And not just that, but he is betrayed by who? Jesus is betrayed by his brothers. We mentioned the verse last week from, from the gospel of John chapter 1. John introduces his gospel by saying some of these words. Christ, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Instead, they betrayed him. Jesus himself, in his teachings and his parables, predicts his own betrayal. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know what's amazing about that parable? At some points of it, you could almost think he was recounting the story of Joseph and his brothers. Right? It almost sounds like the same scenario. And yet Jesus tells this prophetic parable, and he's saying, this is what's going to happen to me. Because we've seen this story before in the Old Testament, and now it is playing itself out again. Jesus' betrayal is a key element of his gospel suffering. We reference it, you probably have noticed, every single time we do the Lord's Supper. We reference Jesus' betrayal. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when they were gathered together, he took bread and broke it and said, right? Every single week. We remember Jesus' betrayal because it's a key aspect of his, uh, of his, of his passion. We talk all the time about the cross and we should. We talk all the time about the scourging and the cat of nine tails and those things. We talk all the time about the crown of thorns and, and the three nails. We talk about the spear in the side. Um, we talk about the mocking and the beating. But the thing that I think we just kind of add in or leave out somehow is we leave out the betrayal. The fact that Jesus is betrayed by his brothers, both brothers according to the flesh, that is his Jewish nation, and brothers according to the faith, that is his disciples. Both betray him. And again, as we read this story, the connections between Jesus' betrayal and Joseph's are conspicuous, I think. And there's a danger here. You can always do this. This is the danger with typology. Okay. We said it last week. It's not an allegory. You don't have to take every little detail and find a way that it fits. Okay. That's not how it works. But there are these big connections that stand out. These similar similarities that we just can't ignore, I think. So for example, it's interesting how Joseph is specifically sold for 20 pieces of silver. 
And then Jesus, when we get to the New Testament, is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Just when we hear that, we go, okay, that, that's interesting. There's a connection there. I think it's interesting that the brothers don't want the blood on their own hands. So they hand Joseph over to the Gentiles. Essentially so that they will do the dirty work for them. The Jewish leaders don't want to kill Jesus, don't have authority to kill Jesus, and don't want to do it because of their fear of the people. So what do they do? They hand him over to the Roman authorities who have the authority to crucify so that they won't be held accountable for it. Although if you remember the story, Pontius Pilate doesn't let them get away with it and basically says, no, I wash my hands of this. This man's death is on you. Here's another interesting thing. And this ties back into both the typological and the moral picture that we see in the passage. It's strange how silent Joseph is. You ever thought about that? You read the story and it's weird how quiet he is in the midst of this. Because given our brief exposure to Joseph, he seems to be more like the kind of person that doesn't know when to shut up, right? The first 11 passages was him just like running around telling on people and like telling everybody his dreams about how he was going to rule over them. Okay. Joseph doesn't kind of, he doesn't seem like a quiet kind of guy. And yet he says nothing in this story as his brothers are attacking him, persecuting him. Stripping him of his garment, throwing him in the pit, bringing him up and selling him into slavery. Joseph is completely silent and we're told nothing of the way that he responds to the betrayal. And that's a whole lot like Jesus as he is betrayed, as he is there on the day of the cross, who in righteousness and in nobility is silent before his accusers. He doesn't beg. He doesn't petition. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call down vengeance on his attackers. He does not cast his pearls before swine. But instead, Joseph accepts the path that we see fulfilled in Jesus. One of the, one of the commentators who I was reading this way talked about this pattern that we see throughout scripture. And it is humiliation that leads to exaltation resulting in salvation. That is the gospel path that Christ follows. That is the path of salvation that Joseph follows for the world. And so again, we see these comparisons between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. When we get to the New Testament, after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended, we get to the book of Acts, and you'll remember the first martyr, Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives this sort of long sermon to, to the Jewish leaders who were there just before he is stoned to death by them. And you know what he says? He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
And then you know what he does? The first example he gives of that kind of betrayal, the first example of God's people rejecting God's chosen one, you know who it is? Of course you do. It's Joseph. That Joseph is the first one. Joseph is the beginning in that line of someone whom God chose as his favored instrument and his own people rejected him and betrayed him. But just like Joseph, from the outside, we see only the wickedness and ugliness of the betrayal. But from heaven's eyes, we see that that betrayal will be used by God for the salvation of the world. And that's the continuing story that we will find ourselves in in the coming weeks. So what I want to do is close and we'll just go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, on one side, I would say um, probably many of us, the thing that that struck our hearts most as we read this story is, is the relationships that we have, the betrayals that we've experienced already. Know that Jesus um, empathizes with that betrayal, that he has experienced betrayal even to a greater extent by loved ones, by those he trusted, by people who should have treated him differently, even by us. And yet he has forgiven. He has extended grace and mercy in a posture of forgiveness, and he calls us to do the same. If that's not where you're at, if you said, you know, Ash, I feel pretty blessed. I, I don't, I haven't experienced that kind of betrayal in my life. Um, then I hope that maybe you'll reflect on the fact that, that we are all Christ's betrayers, that we in our own sin turn our backs on Jesus Christ. I love the story and I've told it a hundred times probably, but it's a great illustration of Mel Gibson while he was filming the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, there is the scene where, where they nail the nails into Christ's hands and the hand that is holding the stake and the hand that is driving the hammer, you don't see anything else. You just see Jesus' hand. You see the nail being nailed into his hand. But the person holding the, the nail and the person striking the hammer is Mel Gibson, who's not in the movie, right? But Mel Gibson said, I want to do that. I want to be the hands in the picture that are putting the nails into Christ's hands. Why? And he said, because I recognize that it was my sin that caused Christ to be crucified, that I am the one who betrayed Christ and therefore caused him to be crucified. And that's the reality for all of us. But knowing also that Jesus Christ forgives us for those sins, that he loves us, he has mercy on us, and he calls us back into his fellowship. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask God to work these things in our hearts, whether it is a personal issue that you've got in these things or the larger um, picture of your relationship with Christ, um, that God would work um, and convict us of these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, your mercies are new every morning. God, you are, are kind when we deserved severity. 
God, you are merciful when we deserved justice. God, you are gracious when we deserved anything but that. God, we have all experienced the hurt of betrayal. We have all been betrayers ourselves. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our betrayals and that you would help us to forgive those in our lives who have been our betrayers. God, that we with Christ could stand and invite those people back into fellowship and back into friendship, back into service. God, those re- those relationships would be reconciled. God, that you would use them for your glory in the future. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You said it's even going to be soft. Almighty fortress is our God. Our helper, he amid the flood. Of all the world, we still I Father is not his Don't make to them, mother. 
Amen. Good to see you tonight. Um, hope you have a great week. Be careful in terms of the weather. Uh, you know, get that milk and bread. Or what are you going to do if you don't? So, um, hope to see you, um, next week. Like I said, keep your eyes and ears open for announcements for any cancellations for, for, um, uh, some of our, our weekly meetings and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, uh, here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.